Hi, this is Edwin Crozier from the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to thank you for joining us and welcome you as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was preached to the Franklin Church of Christ on July 20th, 2008. It's part two of 11 ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. If you haven't heard part one yet, I encourage you to stop this recording now and go to franklinchurchofchrist.com and download the first part, also preached on July 20th of 2008. I hope this lesson edifies and challenges you, so open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29, and get ready to learn the rest of the 11 ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. We read Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29 this morning, where it says, Do you see a man that excels in his work? He'll stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. But as I pointed out, excellence seems to be a little bit overrated, if you ask me. And the fact is, only a minority of us will ever excel. Most folks only ever get to average. In fact, that's why we call it average, because that's what most folks are doing. And so we've developed just a very simple plan to make that our goal. Eleven ways to be unremarkably average Christians. This morning we noticed the verse 5 of those ways. We recognize that if we want to be unremarkably average Christians, number one, equate Christianity with going to church. Number two, only do what the preacher proves I absolutely have to do. Number three, fit spirituality in around everything else going on in my life. Number four, overextend myself financially. And then number five, when someone strikes me, I'll hit them back. Tonight I want us to learn the rest of the 11 ways to be unremarkably average Christians. We've got six more to look at, but before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty and glorious Father in heaven, we love you because you are awesome. You are the excellent God. There is no, no other that's like you. And we're thankful that you've looked down upon us with love, that you sent your Son to die for us so that we could be taken out of the sinful world and set apart for holiness in order to serve and glorify you. Father, we pray that you'd be with us tonight as we consider your words, that we might learn to be the kind of Christians that you want us to be. And forgive us for those times when we've fallen short of that. Help us to strive for what you want in us. We love you, Father, and we thank you so much that you have loved us. It's through your Son that we offer this prayer. Amen. Eleven ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Number six, never confess to my brothers or sisters. Number six, never confess to my brothers and sisters. I have to admit that it really bothers me the number of folks that today start talking about how we ought to be sharing these things with one another. How we need to be letting one another know what's going on in our lives and how we need to shed light on what's going on inside of us and, and that we, that we ought to share with folks our deepest struggles and our darkest sins. That just really bothers me. I mean, obviously, obviously, if I have done something really, really bad, and everybody knows about it, and it's brought shame and reproach on the church, then yes, I need to go forward, and, and I need to apologize, and I need to let everybody know that what I did was wrong, and to let everybody know that I'm never, ever going to sin again, as if that's possible. But who do these people think they are? 
to say that I should share what's going on inside of me with them? What gives them the right to think that I ought to share with them my sins and my struggles? I know about James chapter 5 and verse 16. I know what it says there. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, the Bible says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And I know that James 5.16 is not talking about coming forward. It's talking about finding uh, brethren who I can turn to for support and prayer who will help me overcome my sins. And I know that James 5.16 talks about being healed, and, and I think that's talking about being healed of my sin sickness. And so I understand that that verse really isn't about what people have a right to know. It's not about folks deserving to know what's going on. It's rather about me finding the help that God is offering me through my brethren. It's about me finding someone that I can talk to and share with who will pray with me so that I can have the help that God offers to overcome my sins. But I just have to tell you that in all honesty... I just don't really want to do that. I would much rather allow the internal struggle and turmoil to continue on with the bitterness, the resentment, the shame, the guilt, the pain, and the hurt. Because I know that if I ever actually start telling people what I struggle with, and if I ever actually start telling people the sins that plague me, that sooner or later somebody's going to judge me and somebody's going to betray me. And so I would rather just hold that on the inside and struggle with it, and hope that somehow it just dissipates all on its own. You see, only those who want to excel in serving Christ will find the help that God is offering through their brethren and go to them and talk to them and confess their sins and struggles to them. For the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, we'll just hold all that stuff inside and never confess to our brothers or sisters. Number seven, forgive only when others have earned it and never say, I'm sorry. Number seven, forgive only when others have earned it and never say, I'm sorry. People have hurt me. And I don't just mean kind of hurt. I mean really hurt. And how dare they think that all they need to do is come and ask for forgiveness and I just give it to them. And definitely don't expect me to apologize to them. It's not my fault. The things that I've done aren't my fault. I wouldn't have done what I did if they hadn't done what they did. And what they did was much worse. And so I'm definitely not going to say I'm sorry unless they apologize first. Now, I know what the Scripture says in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus, as He talked about prayer there, said, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I understand that He says that if I don't forgive others, I won't be forgiven. But I think that what He means there is just about the small things, not about the really big things. I mean, Jesus needs to understand what's been done to me. People have, have hurt me. They've betrayed me. They've stabbed me in the back. They might as well have killed me. Surely Jesus can't expect me just to forgive folks when they ask for it then. And of course, I know what it says in Luke chapter 23. 
And verse 34, where folks were actually killing Jesus, and on the cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I see his example of forgiveness there, but come on, I mean, Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He can do that. That's easy for him. Surely he can't expect someone who's just a human like me to actually offer that same kind of forgiveness to others. And I, I remember what it says in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 23, when it talks about if I've done something wrong to someone else, and there it says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I understand this passage says that if I've done something wrong to someone, that I need to go to them and, and deal with that and reconcile. And I understand that it doesn't make any exception for if they've also done something wrong to me. But I just can't believe that God would really hold it against me that I'm waiting for them to make the first move. You see, really only those who want to excel and serve in Christ. Offer forgiveness when people have asked for it and apologize when they've done something wrong. But for the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, we're not going to forgive others until they've earned it. And we're certainly not going to say we're sorry. At least not until they've apologized first. Number eight. Number eight. Never change my opinion about anything. I've got all the right answers on all the questions that matter. I already know the truth on just about everything. And so why on earth would I ever change my opinion on anything? In fact, I am so certain that I have the truth on just about every important matter why do I even need to listen to your opinions and thoughts and beliefs? There's just absolutely no sense in you even trying to tell me that I might be wrong about something because I know that I'm right and I'm not ever going to change my opinion on anything. Now, I know what James chapter 1 and verse 19 says, that I need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And I know that 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8 through 8, demonstrates that I need to add knowledge to my faith. And, and verse 8 says that that knowledge needs to be increasing. I know that that says that, that I still have room to grow. And I know that Acts chapter 15 and the debate that they had in Jerusalem with the, with the Pharisees who thought that Gentiles had to be circumcised before they could be baptized, I know that that stands out as a great example that some folks can be really, really convinced and yet still be really, really wrong and need to change their minds. But honestly, that's not me. Because I know I've got it right. Besides that, I changed my opinion once back when I became a Christian. And if I stop and start listening to those who disagree with me, well, I might end up compromising and abandoning the truth that I learned way back then. I recognize that in Acts chapter 18, that Apollos stands out as a stellar example of somebody who was really, really close, really, really smart, and really, really eloquent, and yet still really, really wrong. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 24, it says, 
Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I realize this demonstrates that I could be really close and yet still be really wrong, but but that was about baptism. I know I'm not wrong on baptism. Besides, if I start listening to folks who disagree with me and really trying to understand where they're coming from, they might actually prove me wrong from the Bible, and then I'd have to change my opinion. And as we've already pointed out, I'm not ever going to change my opinion on anything. You see, only those who want to excel in serving Christ recognize that the truth has nothing to fear, and therefore they can listen intently and with understanding to what others say, even if they disagree and then can even change their opinion if proven wrong from the Bible. But for the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, well, we don't have to listen to anyone because we already know all the answers, and we'll just never change our opinion about anything. Number nine, never talk to others about spiritual things. Number nine, never talk to others about spiritual things. I go to church regularly. In fact, usually multiple times a week. And I just have to tell you, as far as I'm concerned, that's my quota of spiritual conversation. I mean, after two sermons and two Bible classes, what more is there to say? Now, I don't spend a whole lot of time with other Christians, but when I do, I don't want to waste my time talking about the things that we already discussed in Bible class or heard in the sermon. I want to talk about things that are really important in my life. I want to talk about work. I want to talk about the Titans. I want to talk about the baseball draft. I want to talk about the weather. I want to talk about my favorite TV shows. I don't want to hear what somebody else has been studying in their Bible. If it's really that important, they can bring it up in our next Bible class. And I'll tell you, I definitely don't want spiritual conversation to come up when I'm talking to non-Christians. Because they might think that I'm some kind of extremist Jesus freak or something. That would be awful. That they might think that I'm somehow wanting to excel in serving Christ. So I don't want to talk to folks about spiritual things. Now, I remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. In Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, where he pointed out that if I want him to acknowledge me before his Father, that I have to acknowledge him before others. And, and if I don't acknowledge him before others, he won't acknowledge me before his Father. I understand that Jesus wants me to acknowledge him before the world. And I'm going to do that when I am absolutely certain that the person I'm acknowledging Jesus to is not going to think I'm insane or some kind of crazy nut job. That would be awful publicity for the Lord. I recognize that in Acts chapter 16, that the Philippian jailer and his entire family were baptized for the remission of their sins in the middle of the night. And that happened because Paul and Silas were unashamed to demonstrate their spirituality openly to the folks who were around them. But guys, come on, they were already in jail. 
it couldn't get any worse for them. Now, Jesus said these things, and He wasn't looking forward to the religious and social climate of our day. I remember that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 that because he knew the fear of the Lord, he would persuade men. But I think the fear of the Lord is overblown today. We need to remember that God loves us. It's not like He's going to punish us because we're not doing what He says, is it? And I remember what James wrote in James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I understand that this says that when I talk to those who are wandering in sin, if they come back to the truth, that I've covered a multitude of sins and saved their soul from death. And if I was absolutely certain that they would actually listen to me, I would do that but I'm pretty sure that I'm just going to push them farther away, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. You see, only those who want to excel in serving Christ talk to others about spiritual things. Only those who want to excel in serving Christ make spiritual things a part of their regular conversation, whether it's with Christians or non-Christians. For the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, we won't talk to others about spiritual things. Hardly ever. Number ten. You want to be an unremarkably average Christian? Don't get out of the boat. One of the oddest stories for me in the entire Bible is found in Matthew chapter 14. You probably remember the story when Jesus came to the disciples walking on the water and, and Peter cried out and said, Hey, Jesus, if that's you, let me come out to you. You remember it happened in Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to think, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's just about the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. Peter says, let me come out there with you, as if walking on the water is possible. And I guess it's true that for a few moments, Peter, as he was walking to Jesus, experienced the thrill that nobody else has ever experienced, that of walking on the water. But can you imagine the humiliation he felt when he began to be afraid and he failed and he started to sink? I understand that those other apostles in the boat, they didn't get to walk on the water ever, but they didn't almost drown either. As far as I'm concerned, I don't really want to take that many chances. I don't like to risk. I don't really like to step out in faith. And so, I'm just going to stay in the boat, thank you very much. I don't like taking risks. I don't like going out on a limb. If things don't look easy, if I'm not sure that it's going to be an absolute success, I'd rather just stay back and, and not do anything and, and just wait on the Lord's return. Now, I remember the story in Matthew chapter 25 about the one-talent man whom the Master rebuked because he didn't do anything with that one talent. But I'll tell you, see, the difference is that guy probably could have actually done something, and I know that I can. I'm really more like the half-talent guy. 
And, and I really couldn't do anything for the Lord. It would be a failure. I would sink. I'd be just like Peter. I'd be afraid. And I'd fall flat on my face. And it wouldn't do any good. It's not going to work. If somebody thinks it's not going to work, I'd really rather not try. I know that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. But I really don't like that idea of walking out in faith and just doing what God has said no matter what I can see coming. I really don't want to just throw myself into God's commands and just do what He says unless I can see the reward right there within my reach. And so I'm not going to take any chances. I'm not going to take any risks. I'm not going to get out of the boat. I'm just going to, I'm just going to play it safe. Just going to play it safe. Now, I realize that means that I probably won't do very many things. I, I won't do any great things in the kingdom of God. But when I stand before God in judgment, I'm just going to remind Him that if He wanted me to do great things, He should have made me at least a two-talent man. And so it's not my fault. You see, only those who want to excel in serving Christ will get out of the boat and take chances and just do what God says, surrendering to Him no matter what, trusting Him to carry them through. For the rest of us, willing to settle for being unremarkably average Christians, we'll stay in the boat and not take chances. Eleven ways to be an unremarkably average Christian. Number one, equate Christianity with going to church. Number two, only do what the preacher has proven I positively, absolutely have to do. Number three, fit spirituality in around everything else. Number four, overextend myself financially. Number five, if someone strikes me, hit them back. Number six, never confess to my brothers or sisters. Number seven, only forgive when folks have absolutely earned it and never say I'm sorry. Number eight, never change my opinion on anything. Number nine, never talk to others about spiritual things. Number ten, don't get out of the boat. And number eleven, never worry about being only average because no one's ever going to question me about it anyway. Never worry about being average because nobody's ever going to care anyway. I realize that if I follow this very simple plan, I will only ever be an unremarkably average Christian. I understand that I will never accomplish great things in the kingdom of God. I understand that I will never glorify God with the excellent service that He really deserves. I understand that it might actually even cost me my soul, but I'm relying on God's grace to save me anyway. And so I'm not really worried about following this plan, and, and you shouldn't be worried about it either. Because here's the great thing about following this plan. When I'm only ever an unremarkably average Christian, nobody else ever gets upset with me. Nobody else will ever feel threatened by the things that I say or do. Nobody else will ever feel challenged by the things that I say or do. Nobody else will ever feel uncomfortable by the things that I say and do. Nobody else is ever going to call the elders and complain to them about the things that I say and do. Nobody else is going to attack me. Nobody's going to, to, to mock me. Nobody's going to ridicule me. Nobody's going to uh, despise me. I won't rock anybody else's boat. They won't be rocking mine. Nobody else will ever really be influenced by anything that I ever say or do. No one else will ever question. Well, except for those Christians who are trying to excel, but there's so few of them, who cares what they think? You see, I just try to be an unremarkably average Christian. Life is just so much easier. And everybody else will just get along with me so much better. 
think that's what I might try to do. After all, only those who want to excel in serving Christ will excel. For the rest of us who are willing to settle for being only unremarkably average Christians, we don't have to ever worry about what anybody else will think. We don't have to worry about it. Because nobody else will bug us about it. But you know, after having developed this very simple 11-step plan to be an unremarkably average Christian, I keep coming back to Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 29 that says, Do you see a man who excels in his work? He'll stand before kings. He won't stand before unknown men. And I can't help but think that in the spiritual realm, this passage tells me that if I want to stand before the king, I have to excel in my spiritual work. Maybe excellence is what I should strive for after all. I'll let you make that call. I certainly hope this lesson challenges you and pushes you to actually go beyond average and strive for excellence as you serve Jesus this week. Let's remember what we learned in these two lessons. If you want to be an unremarkably average Christian, you can, one, equate Christianity with going to church. Two, only do what the preacher proves you absolutely have to do. Three, fit spirituality around everything else going on in your life. Four, overextend yourself financially. Five, when someone strikes you, hit him back. Six, never confess to your brothers and sisters. Seven, Forgive only when others have earned it, and never say you're sorry. Eight, never change your opinion about anything. Nine, never talk to others about spiritual things. Ten, don't get out of the boat. Eleven, never worry about being average. No one will ever question you about it anyway. Again, I hope hearing it like this has encouraged, edified, and challenged you to press beyond average and serve Jesus with excellence. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you. We look forward to making you a welcome guest at any of our classes or assemblies. You can find directions and times of our classes and assemblies on our website. Once again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.